Hey everybody, welcome back to E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. This episode today is sponsored by Bruch. If you're working from home and have canceled all of your in-person stuff lately as a result of this pandemic, you might have dodged your dentist. Thankfully, Bruch is taking care of that through state-of-the-art technology shipped direct to your door. It was developed in collaboration with dentists to ensure an amazing clean every time. Ultra soft bristles, six cleaning modes, sonic wave technology. It is an amazing clean. Anyway, for more info on Bruch and to give your teeth the best hygiene they've seen in a long time, go to bruch.com. And don't forget to use the code E215 for 15% off. That's bruch.com, B-R-U-U-S-H.com. And don't forget to use the code E215, that's E215, for 15% off. Today on the show is Philip McKernan, who is one of the most sought-after executive coaches in the world. He works with entrepreneurs and founders, but also is in demand in the world of sports, where he works one-on-one with individual athletes. In this very deep and thought-provoking interview, we discuss a variety of topics, many of which are relevant right now, including the difference between control and influence, the state of couples and relationships in the wake of the pandemic, why working parents are often more patient with their clients than they are with their kids, why as an entrepreneur, your back pocket idea is likely the one you should pay attention to, the cost of cheating on yourself, and much more. This chat is one of those that produced such a long list of takeaways, at least for me. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And with that, let's get to the episode. So how has your business and perhaps more importantly, your life changed since mid-Feb, let's say? Yeah, my, I suppose, really, you know, if you look at it from from kind of high level, um, we decided as a what we consider ourselves a small boutique uh, coaching business. And what we decided to do was double down on live intimate experiences. So we have groups where we bring, you know, 20 people or 25 people to places as far away as India. Uh, we go to Ireland every year. Um, et cetera. And then we created a concept called One Last Talk, which is a movement where people deliver the one last talk before they die. And that is delivered live in 10 to 12 cities in different parts of the world. So we decided in a world that has increasingly become super, super, super connected um, electronically, but actually become super disconnected emotionally, we decided to double down. And that was a very clear intentional strategy on our side. Um, but what that has obviously done, in one could argue, in one sense, has left, left us very, very exposed, um, you know, through the whole COVID-19 thing, whereby events are, are obviously postponed or canceled for the moment. So our revenue is probably off the off the bat dropped by 80 mm. percent. Um, and um, so that's that's basically what what it's done from a from a business standpoint. And while we are looking to to pivot and to bring more stuff online, which we have done with organizations and individuals. Um, I, I'm still taking the long-term bet that, uh, you know, live events are going to come back and they're going to come back um, with, with a different level of need and desire from people because they're going to want that connection. And that's, that, that's where we're going to be there ready to go when, when that happens. So I know you work with typically very high profile people, entrepreneurs, executives, athletes, and others. Um, what are you seeing? Currently, what are they struggling with when they're coming to you right now? 
Well, I, I can tell you one thing for absolute certain. The people who have had control being a big part of their lives and control just for the just for the record, let me contextualize that is where they have everything in a certain place where they have a lot of busyness and a lot of, um, you know, their their calendars are, are, are very, 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 um, you know, organized and everything is regimented. They also have very high expectations on themselves, which a lot of high achievers do. They therefore trans, you know, they basically transfer a lot of those high expectations to their workmates, but also to their loved ones and their kids, which has uh, often a, a, a very, very different energy than it does in work. And um, what's happening is the more you have historically used control in your life, which, by the way, control is a complete and utter illusion. It doesn't exist to begin with. Uh, so control is about uh, being in control. And control is actually driven by actually more insecurity than, than a need for security, ironically. Um, so the people that are coming to me that are struggling the most are the people who have had a lot of control in their lives. They may not even be conscious of it, but they've created a lot of control you know, um, mechanisms in their life. And those people are being rattled to the core and back there because the scaffolding of control that they've built around their lives has actually is now being being really, really, really shaken. Mm -hmm. um, so they're the people that are struggling the most. And the second thing I'm seeing is that a lot of there's a heightened sense of emotion. There's a heightened sense, as you would expect, of anxiety, of uncertainty, of, of fear, of anger. And what I, what I would strongly and respectfully suggest is that a lot of that fear is is being in, in, you know evoked today it's been triggered through covid 19 and and the economic ramifications of this but a lot of this stuff is very old and there was a, a psychoanalyst who was uh, existed around the mid 1800s called donald winnicott and he said very profoundly he said the catastrophe you fear will happen has in fact already happened so a lot of the uncertainties, losing my business, losing my relationship, losing my, my shares, losing my wealth, uh, not being able to build wealth, a lot of that actually comes from our past because we know what it's like to lose money. We know what it's like to have no money. We've witnessed somebody in our past go through that. We're afraid of getting our heart broken because we've had it broken before. So a lot of what we're seeing today, notwithstanding, there are certain things that are happening, obviously, and I don't want to be insensitive to that. But it's actually just stirring up a lot of shit that people haven't dealt with in the past. When you mention that COVID is a trigger and that these emotions, anxiety, fear, and otherwise have been there for many years or that stem from the past, what sorts what sort of feedback do you get? Like what is their reaction when they hear that? So I wouldn't necessarily present that to somebody in a coaching capacity. What I would do is begin to actually try to really pinpoint what's the, what's the overriding emotion that, that's not serving them right now and really begin to track their relationship to that emotion going back in it over a period of time. So for example, I literally had an entrepreneur recently who said, you know, I'm feeling contracted right now. I'm getting scared and I'm getting scarce and I feel I'm not making great decisions. And I said, well, you're probably not. And I said, when was the last time you remember this? And he said, well, actually in 2008, in the last recession, I, I feel that I'm, I'm playing out the same patterns, the same emotions, the same thought process, the same. And I said, well, really what you're talking about is a pattern. I said, it showed up in 2008 and it showed up again in, and it's showing up again in, in 2020, but this is something that's old. So what we do is we track back to his relationship to money, to his relationship to certainty, to, to his relationship to failure. And what you find is the real gold in all of this is the patterns that have emerged from our early childhood in some cases that are beginning to show up in certain patterns and you can actually track it back. And when we can shine a light on that, 
then what happens is that the fears and the anxieties dissipate a little bit. You start to come out of them. You start to realize that actually it's not that it, there's no valid, validity in it, but the story really is compounded by a lot of the stuff we haven't dealt with. When you talk about the lack of control that one may have and the fact that control doesn't exist, how does this situation then with the pandemic differ from pre-pandemic times, given that, you know, control was sort of this illusion that we all had even before this. I think this pandemic, ironically, is a classic example, a phenomenal example of, of the fact that actually, regardless of what situations, what risk mitigation you put in, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, we should be irresponsible, never think about risk mitigation and systems and, and so on and so forth and planning and so and, and everything else. But the reality is that you know, nature is uncontrollable. You, you cannot control, ultimately, you can influence and that's a very, very different thing. You can influence, like, so for example, if you believe in global warming, you can influence the speed of global warming or it's, 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 you know, it's retraction or whatever, to some extent by what we do and our behaviors. But ultimately, uh, I think this, this pandemic is actually showing us how out of, uh, you know, how little control we have in this world. And I think there's one great example of this, just a personal quick one. I lived in Canada, as, as you know, for, for nine years and, um, I loved Canada. I love living there. People have been great to us. And uh, but one of my biggest, my biggest single frustration was just the uncertainty from a, a visa standpoint. And I always said, you know, if, they, if, if, if Canada didn't want us there, that's fine. Just let us know. But it kept we kept getting dragged along through the system. And every time we'd meet, uh, you know, an officer, an immigration officer, they'd look at our case and just go like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry you've had to go through this. And it's just because we didn't fit into a box and the system wasn't ready for us. And long story short, I decided and my wife decided, you know what, we're going to leave. We, we can't live with the uncertainty of, of, of at any point we may get a letter to say we have two weeks to leave the country, which often happens. So we decided to apply for a visa in the United States, of which we got relatively easily because we had a fairly decent story to, 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 to build it. And I'm not exaggerating when I say I'm in the car one day, we had just got our visas for the United States. And my wife rings me and says, you're not going to believe what happened. And I said, the immigration cards, the permanent residency cards arrived. She goes, how the hell did you know? And I said, I don't know. I just felt it. And it wasn't until we let go of living in Canada, did we suddenly get accepted into Canada. And I find that every time I let go in life, something emerges and I actually, something's happened this week and I, I genuinely just cannot talk about it. I'm open to talking about anything typically. But we're we're looking to this this project that just is emerging, and yet we decided to give up this home, go on the road, take an RV uh, for for six weeks, and as soon as we did that, this thing landed—not landed in our lap, but it presented itself to us. And I think it's a great example. And the way I would give a physical—I love visual—I love visual stuff. So a visual representation of this is. There's there's three types of people in the pandemic right now. There's the people holding on barely at the top of the cliff and just holding on to everything they've known. And they're almost paralyzed because they're not moving, shaking and shifting with the landscape. They're holding on, waiting for this thing, for normality to, to re-emerge re in a blink of an eye at some point. There's the other people that are going down the cliff and they're scraping their nails. They're begrudgingly kind of moving with the uncertainty. And then there's other people who are letting go and they're falling into wherever this pandemic and whatever this economic landscape is going to be. And I'm finding that they're the people that are coping the best because they're able to see opportunities where others are not. They're able to get away from scarcity where others are paralyzed. And they're not waiting for the government or waiting for Donald Trump or waiting for Trudeau or waiting for, for any other politician to give them permission 
to get back on the saddle and to recreate, reinvent or reimagine their life beyond this. It feels like the difference is being proactive versus just simply resisting, right? Resisting this idea that the world should be a certain way, um, but it's not. And just the anxiety and the frustration and the emotions that build around that mindset can be really, really tough. I work a lot with couples and the couples that feel or the individuals in life that feel they need somebody in their life to make them happy or complete are the ones that struggle the most. The people who say, you know what, I don't need a partner, but by God, it'd be lovely to share this journey with somebody else. They're the ones that tend to have a lot more fluency in the relationship. They give their partner freedom. They're not scared. They're not scarce. Uh, They're not trying to control their partner because opposites often attract. There's some real truth in that. But then we spend the next five, 10 or 15 years trying to change our partner to see the world like we do. And that's where the shit hits the fan. And the, and the statistics around relationships and why relationships are breaking up is because we spend, we wait five years too late to have real conversations. And I see this in the world of entrepreneurship and leadership is, is people often thrive in their business because their identity is attached to that and they can control that environment. At least they think more they can, but they really struggle in their relationships at home. And to me, that is a leader that is lost. I want to make sure that the greatest joy I get is when people connect to relationships that are have meaning so they don't have any regrets in the future. Um, so again, that that idea of of letting go is is just so critical in the world today, particularly in the world of leadership. Are you continuing to work with couples through this pandemic? And if so, have has anything changed or surprised you based on what they're coming to you with? That's a great question. Yes, is the answer. I've continued to work. We just ran a a virtual or I I don't like the word word virtual, but an online live experience over three weeks. um, And basically we gave homework in between and we shifted it up a bit. I think the thing that probably doesn't, I'm I'm sure it's shocked me or surprised me, but the thing that I noticed is that you, you, you have two things going on. You have either couples who want to work on their relationship and see are proactive and and, and want to work on it. And I find that they were a hell of a lot more open with their sharing, with their vulnerability, because it's almost like, well, fuck, we have nothing to lose. There's so much carnage in one way going on in the world. So they're just being a little bit more unapologetic with their sharing in a very constructive way. But you also have this continuation of couples who one person wants to work in the relationship and the other person doesn't. And the interpretation that the person who's resisting is, well, what's wrong with us? And, and the work that I do, it's, well, there's nothing wrong with you. It, this is not about building a relationship that's broken. This is about enhancing a relationship that's great. This is about building a relationship and having conversations today. So those same conversations don't come back and haunt you in five or 10 years from now. Um, but you still have this idea of this defiance that, no, I'm good. I'm okay. This, this, this form of denial where people don't feel they have to work on themselves. And there is a reason why 90 plus percent of people die with major life regrets. Um, it's not the statistics and the, and the research is not 20, 95% or 90% of stupid people die with regrets. It's 90% of people. None of us get out of bed. Not one person do I know that gets out of bed intentionally every morning and says, I'm going to make a decision today that's going to create a domino effect that's ultimately going to leave me in my future 20, 30, 40 years from now having some major life regrets. Yet statistically, And scientifically, we do that as humans all the time. And my job is just to, if nothing else, awaken people to the fact that they're an inch off now or maybe a half a foot off. But compound that over 20 years, you can end up in a place you don't want to be. So so to me, it's, it's really valuable. And I think this is a great time, not again to diminish what's going on in the world, but a great time to step back and say, okay, hang on. 
here, here's a couple of questions to think about is who do I want to be, who do I want to, how do I want to remember myself beyond this pandemic? Forget about how the world sees you. How do I want to remember myself? When I look back in six months, six years, 16 years, am I the one that stood on the sidelines waiting to be told what to do or was I proactive and reactive in the whole thing? You know, do you want to go back to the way it was? Like, are you, are you, are you yearning the, 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 the way it was before? Or is there a part of you that has, albeit somewhat forced, has realized that actually in my case, for example, I was doing a tremendous amount of unnecessary travel. And at the time, and even now, I could justify and rationalize every flight, every Uber, and it's bullshit. I was traveling because that was part of my identity. I was traveling because I was also, not hugely, but I was struggling connecting with my kids. So a lot of men and women, but particularly men, they're addicted to work because they don't know how to be at home. They're addicted to work because that's where they can, they feel they can control. They're addicted to work because that's where they get their significance. And again, some of you will be lucky to go back to work. Some of you will be lucky to have your businesses there. So again, don't take this as I'm flippant. And, 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 but even despite the fact that our business is on its knees economically and financially, I'm reimagining is, do I want to go back to the where it was? And yes, in some facets, absolutely. There's nothing else on this earth I'd rather do. However, the way in which I was going about it has got to change because it was not sustainable. There's a lot there to unpack. One thing that stuck out was the idea of struggling to connect with your your kids. And I think that's a huge problem for a lot of people. And now that we're locked down, we're being forced to do everything at home. This is a huge disruption for a lot of folks. What has been your experience? Um, first of all, coming back home and spending, um, my assumption is way more time now with your kids than you did before. And how are you seeing other folks struggle with this that maybe had this challenge to begin with? Yeah, people are really, really struggling in this area uh, significantly. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to share a quick story, and I apologize if I go way off off there. But this is a really important story. So, so one of the things, like, and a lot of people would consider me an amazing father. People who know me, when when I work with clients, the one thing they say to me consistently is, "The person you are at home is the person we see at events." There is no difference. In fact, many of my clients come to my home. Like we have small groups here. They meet my family. We go to Peru. We work with in orphanages. Might bring my family with me. They're not around all the time, but like they're my my family are exposed. There's one Philip McKernan. There's not a Philip McKernan in business and a Philip McKernan in life. Um, but, but, but something that is just so simple and yet something many of us forget, there's a lot of parents who are beating the shit out of themselves for not being good enough and not being patient enough. And then there is a lot of mothers in particular and fathers, mothers in particular, who really struggle with this idea of identity and resentment because they feel that their kids in some way have impeded their ability to be in the workplace. And we often feel that kids take away our freedom and maybe more now than ever. Um, but it's but it's a psychological approach to that. To me, I've never really felt that necessarily. But one thing that I've definitely felt that I've struggled with is just this idea of connecting in a way that intuitively I know I'm capable of doing. And I, and I made an admission about six months ago that, or maybe a year ago that I wasn't very proud of, but it was true. And that was, I'm often more present and patient with my clients than I am with my own children. And that's something that I don't get any joy from. Um, and, and I really wanted to shift that. And sometimes people say, oh, it's just about spending more time with your kids. Bullshit. You can spend as much time as you want with your kids. It's like the entrepreneur says, yeah, no, I take every Friday off and play golf. It's okay. How, how's, how's the guilt level? Oh, well, I feel I should be in the office. Well, you're wasting your time on the golf course because you may as well be in the office because emotionally you're not giving yourself permission to be present and in nature, et cetera. But I remember 
giving myself permission to begin to imagine and go back in the past to, rem- to, to ima- reimagine the, my relationship to my dad. And very quickly, there was, a, there was a little story I always told about this salmon. <clears throat> and this salmon, basically myself and my dad were on the edge of this river and he was reading a book to me. And behind us, we heard this splash. The river was in front of us and the dam had, 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 had basically reduced the water table. So basically this salmon had gotten stuck in this, in this, in this big pool. And long story short, my dad took the salmon out, put it into the river and let the salmon swim away, much to the disgust of the fishermen who were effing and blinding and going, we've been here all day trying to catch something and you just put that beautiful salmon back in the water. And I've told myself that story because I've been holding on to that story as if myself and my dad were very connected. And we were in many respects. However, when I look back, there's a sadness to that story. And the reason there's a sadness is because that was a very rare thing. My dad didn't spend a lot of independent time with me in our alone time in my early childhood. Why is that important to me as a dad right now? It's critical because what it allowed me to do was to give myself a degree of compassion. Yes, I've used the C word in, a, in an interview that'll go out to people in the leadership space and entrepreneurship <laughs> space, our founders, dare I ever use the word compassion? Um, because most, most, most leaders don't even know what it means to have compassion towards self. Um, and we can talk about that in a minute if you wish, but it allowed me to realize that actually my schooling, while it was great in many ways, I was deprived in some respects of a deep connection with my dad. So I was able to reframe that, not blame my dad, but able to reframe that and say, Hey, Philip, you just didn't go, you just didn't get the schooling in that. Give yourself a fucking break. And what's happened, and I'm not exaggerating, I have become the father in the last four to six to eight weeks that not just I wanted to be, if I'm honest, I actually didn't believe I could ever be. And if I brought my kids into this little office right now and said, hey, how's dad doing on a scale of one to 10 right now? I can guarantee you both of them would say nine or 10 or maybe depending on the day 12. But before it wasn't bad, it just wasn't where I knew it could be. And, and, I, and I was lost to try to figure it out. And that was a huge insight for me. And it gave me beautiful compassion and tenderness to be able to reconnect with my kids in a way I didn't historically or previously know how to do. Have you been good at giving compassion to yourself over the years? Horrendous. It is unbelievably common how, how, how cruel we are to ourselves, whether we're conscious of it or not, how despicably we speak to ourselves or in some cases hold ourselves in the world, how judgmental we are. But here's the, here's the key to this is that so many entrepreneurs, so many leaders, so many athletes that I've worked with and work with go, but hang on a second, Philip, by being hard on myself and others, I elevate my standards. And so what they're basically saying is not just is it important to beat the shit out of yourself, it is essential to beat the shit out of yourself. In fact, I have the data to prove it, Philip. Look at my net worth. Look at the businesses I've built. Look at the teams that I run. Look at the way in which we execute in the world. I go, great. But are you absolutely fulfilled with the juggernaut that you've built? Are you fulfilled with the empire you've built? Because what I find is that if you build something with that type of energy, You'll build something that may be successful, quote unquote, economically, societally, but it may not fulfill you. So what I find is as you diminish the the harshness, as compassion grows, your drive does not diminish with that. In fact, your drive becomes obscenely focused. And what your drive tends to do is shift a little bit from more making money into making more impact. I see this in entrepreneurship all the time where people are brought up in, say, poverty, for example, and they go, my kids are not going to want for anything. And they build 
absolute empires in some cases. And is there anything wrong with that? No. But the problem is that you often build something to the detriment of your own peace of mind. You build something that when you get to the top of that mountain, you look over the horizon, having achieved a monumental goal or even a, a, a simple goal, and you go, holy shit, when I, get, when I got here, I thought I'd feel better. I thought I'd feel contentment. And what we don't do as entrepreneurs or leaders is we don't stop and say, okay, what is the step I missed? What camp did I not stop at and ask the right questions? So what we do is we look across the horizon, we pick another mountain and go, ah, you see, that's the problem. I, that's the mountain. Once I get to that mountain, I'll be fine. And the goddamn pattern just continues to go and to go and to go. And it's not about what we're building. It's why we're building it. Like, what is it about? What's it all for? Who are you really at your core? And, and the, the, I don't know if you know the company or the organization called Techstars, but the founder there, David Cohen, who's, who's I've been very fortunate to do some work with, and I only share that because he's public with it. And also he's a huge fan of the one last movement, the one last talk, the one last conversation, the one last book that we're working on. But he actually, he came up with this idea of one last startup in conjunction with myself and conversations, this idea that he comes across entrepreneurs and, and founders and, and wannabe founders. And I say that in terms of like not, not derogatory, but people who want to find found something and bring it into the world that a lot of them are focused on, say, a widget that they think or an app that they think Google or, or somebody else is going to buy for a billion dollars. And there's not again, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you present this idea, if this was your one last startup, is this the idea you'd bring into the world? Is this the thing you would birth? But here's the key. Everybody has an idea that they, they think, and they also have another idea that if this one doesn't work out or if, if this one isn't the one, they, this, this, this kind of simple, even if it's vague idea, but here's where I get lit up like a Christmas tree, is I'm intrigued about the idea in your back pocket. I'm intrigued by the idea in your back pocket that you don't want to talk about. You don't want to present to the world that you may have given yourself permission to say, hey, when I make enough money, I'll come back and do this one. I know that story far too well. I, 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 I know that story intimately. The back pocket idea is the one that actually will is the greatest expression and extension of who you are. No wonder you don't want to bring it to the world because you're afraid that when you bring you to the world, it'll be rejected. It's easier to fail or be successful delivering something to the world that just lies a little outside of yourself. Do you think that this pandemic is the catalyst that's getting people to reveal what's in their back pocket in terms of entrepreneurial ideas? Uh, you know what? I, I think that's such a brilliant, beautiful question. There is a point and there's a threshold. And I wrote an article, I wrote a blog on Medium um, just about my own personal story. So setting up a, 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 a coaching business in 2008 in Canada, a country I didn't know, in an industry I, I didn't know many people and having no connections, no email list, no database. I'm not even sure I was on Facebook at the time. And it was one of the hardest periods of time in my entire existence on earth. And yet I would love to tell you that it was inspirational and I, I, I decided to launch it because I wanted. I launched it because the pain of not doing it finally caught up. So yes, I do believe that this pandemic is almost giving people, there's, there's this weird, my, there's a friend of mine lives across the road from my house, actually, he's a lawyer, and he's been inundated on people rewriting their wills or writing wills for the first time. So as people globally are dying as a direct result of this COVID-19 or as, as a result of underlying issues and COVID-19 was the last straw, whatever your perspective or the reality on that is, when people are dying, in mass, in, 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 in significant numbers, in every country pretty much in the world, mortality just comes a tiny little bit closer to us. 
And I feel that this is the chance to have a conversation with yourself and other people. And I just feel that we're not having the right conversations. And if nothing else, COVID-19 and the current landscape is, is, I think, accelerating some of those conversations, which to me is a tremendous thing, not necessarily today, but six or six years or 16 years from today. I'm not sure if this is a natural segue or not, but you talk or have talked a bit about concept of the wall of shame. What is the wall of shame? Well, to me, I, I mean, if we take a step back and I, and I look at, I mean, I'm not educated at all. I don't have a sports psychology degree. I don't have anything after my name. And yet I work with some of the most amazing sports athletes in the world. And I think the reason I get on so well with them and can connect with them and get into, into the parts of themselves that they thought they'd never share or even identify is because I don't throw an academic rule book at them and, 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 and try to come across or just naturally come across as fairly academically sophisticated. I can actually just access and, 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 and be with them as friends. Uh, or not friends, but, but, but just more of a friendly kind of banter, if you like. But I think this idea that, you know, we, 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 we put up in lights often the wrong things. So like, for example, if you go to most parents' houses, um, they'll have photographs of kids being baptized and weddings and everything else. And right next to them are these academic, um, you know, achievements, whether it's degrees or PhDs and everything else. And I'm not here to diminish academia. I just think a lot of people go out and actually learn copious amounts of stuff that they're never really going to use. And they do it primarily because they don't know what to do. Um, and if I look back in my life, when was I ever going to fucking use algebra? I mean, it's just a complete waste of time for me. So, um, and we put these things up on lights and we, we put these academic uh, achievements up on lights and these things are, it's almost like th these are, are milestones and these are things that are going to define us. And I believe to my core, the things that have defined us the most are some of the things that we're most embarrassed about, most ashamed about. The, 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 as I say, and, and this is a quote that resonates so deeply with me, as your greatest gift lies right next to your deepest wound. And, and some of the things that I'm most ashamed of in this world or embarrassed by or hurt by are the things that have defined me 10 times more than any degree would. But I don't have that up on a wall. I don't have that framed in a place that I'm somewhat even acceptant of or proud of. I have that in a wall buried deep inside of my, my, my body, deep inside of my, my, my psyche, and it's on the only wall that I will allow it to be seen on is the wall of shame. And I hold myself back. So we all have these things that we have done or have been done to us. And we think we've done this great job in burying them in Pandora's box. We've put a padlock on it. It's six foot under the earth, and therefore it doesn't affect us. It's horseshit. It affects you, it, it affects your energy, it plays at you, it pulls on you, it diminishes you, it reduces your energy, it makes you play just a little bit smaller. And I, I, I would go as far as to say some of the greatest athletes, some of the greatest artists in the world went to the graves with their greatest music or their most honest or transparent music still inside them. And I think that is the greatest tragedy for humans is that we, we leave this earth having not shown up to the greatest extent, because so many of us want to be seen, but by God, we're afraid to be seen. How do people access this idea of your gift lies closest to your deepest wound? How do you get people to awaken to this? They've got to have the courage to go there. And it's, 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 it's not necessarily work that people um, rub their hands at and say, hey, let's go for it. But it's about bringing people back into their past. And I, I meet far too many people who go and I've literally had two last week. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for showing me that my childhood, which was great, wasn't so great. And I go, you're very goddamn welcome because you've been walking around this earth telling yourself a story that just simply isn't true. And now that you're aware <clears throat> that you've had trauma like every single other human being on earth, 
regardless of whether you contextualize that trauma and you compared it next to somebody else, which is a very, very common thing. Now that you know the trauma, can you begin to understand how that trauma is affecting you in ways that you know and ways you do not? And the answer to that question is always, if you do it in the right way and you present it in the right way and you draw the bridge for somebody and allow them to understand the pattern and draw the dots and connect the dots, they look at me and go, absolutely. And I realized that this was the missing, not missing link, it sounds very spectacular, but this is the piece I wasn't shining a light on. And the thing that we can help the world with the most is the very thing that we've gone through. So you can talk about something conceptually, intellectually, you can talk about it almost uh, in third person, but at the end of the day, the person that's been through it is the person that probably can talk to it and speak to it and lean into it and help you address it in a way that that perhaps you couldn't before. So, um, and it's not about becoming a full-time coach or a full-time writer. It's about this idea that so many of us spend all of our lives executing our talents, but never honoring our gifts. The accountant, um, male or female who spends their life, you know, crunching numbers and using spreadsheets and hopefully making a, a difference in something else and writing a check for somebody. They've got something inside of them that just the world has never seen. And in some ways, they're depriving not just themselves, but other people of that gift. Leonardo da Vinci, one of the greatest artists that has ever lived in the history of mankind. And when you ask people, what is he famous for? They will typically say Mona Lisa and the Last Supper and maybe some some sculptures, etc. And yet in the, I, I, I'm please don't quote me, I think it was the 1500s, 1600s, I can't remember, but he wrote a letter to the then leader of Milan, and he was basically asking for a job. And he cited the 10 things that he could do for Milan, the kingdom, whatever the hell they called it, and this leader and his family, from things like, and they were all engineering, and they were mainly around the military, it was all about things like building moats and building mobile bridges, bridges that could be moved from province to province or place to place, so that you could, you, you could move mass amounts of troops, etc. And he keeps going on, I think he mentions tanks, and he goes on and on and on and on. And, and then he, it was pretty much a PS, he said, oh PS, I can also paint. Your soul has a plan. Our brains try to mess it up, in my personal opinion. Leonardo da Vinci couldn't even accept his magic. He was too busy looking for recognition for things that he could do, but not necessarily his gift. We don't put a value on our gift because it's so goddamn natural. The point is that the gift is typically something you do naturally and you don't even know it. And that's why coaching for me was something I did for my, when I was a kid, people came to me. They didn't call it coaching. I didn't call it coach. I don't even like the term coaching. But I was, I was doing this when I was a young kid. I did this in pubs in Ireland. I started holding space for people for an hour, once a week for, for, for six weeks. And at the end of it, and all we'd do is have a cup of tea. And at the end of it, we'd have one beer and we'd go home. And I just thought, like, I'm just talking to people. This is easy for me. And I'm able to cut through bullshit that they can, the stories, and able to see stuff in themselves. And then finally, it dawned on me. And it wasn't an economic thing. I said, no, I want to scale this because I want to scale impact, not I want to scale money. So it's the things that we do naturally is partially related to our gift, but they're the things that we don't recognize as having value in the world. You talk a lot about meaningful work and meaningful relationships. Is gift the thing that unlocks both of these? It is, a it is definitely a contributing factor because the gift requires you to show up fully. And yet most, well, almost every human being that I've ever met wants to be seen. They want, they want, to, be, they want to be accepted and they want to be loved at the core. Yet many of us actually only show parts of ourselves. It's like the idea of, of putting on a ton of makeup, putting on a, on a particular suit, putting on a pair of pants, a shirt or whatever, 
that you don't really like, dressing up in a way you don't really feel connected to, going to a nightclub that you don't even want to go to, dancing to music you don't even like, so you can go and meet somebody and spend the rest of your life with them. The very essence of, I'm not saying those relationships can't work, but the very essence of the environment you're creating to meet somebody is kind of almost inauthentic to begin with. Um, so to me, you know, when we have, I believe there's three relationships in the world, I'll leave God and your own spiritual beliefs outside of, outside of this, is the work we do, the relationship to ourselves and the relationship to other people. And those three relationships will determine our peace of mind, our joy, our fulfillment in this earth. The challenge I often see is that the one area a lot of us sacrifice is we sacrifice the relationship to ourselves. We don't even know what that looks like. We don't have a lot of self-love. We don't have a lot of self-respect. We don't really like who, who we are. And this conversation would have been and is it's very fluffy to a lot. But I'm finding more and more and more now some of the most successful people on earth are beginning to realize that this has been a step that they missed or a step they chose not to step on as they progressed in life. And. Um, and, and the second rela relationship, obviously, is the relationship to people around you, intimacy, loved ones, kids, et cetera, and the work we do. And again, a lot of people sacrifice and go to do work they don't want to do because they justify and rationalize that, that it pays for private school, that it pays for these, 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 these things, that it pay, pays for the lifestyle. And what they do is they don't, they don't realize the cost. And I, I'm going to use this very intentionally, the cost of almost cheating on yourself every single day and doing work that you hate in order to get money to create a lifestyle. It just doesn't work. This leads me to this question around intuition. What is intuition and why don't people listen to it in this regard? You know, I'm glad you're saying why. They don't. So thank you for saying that because most people ask me, how do you find it? And it's almost like it's behind some bush next to a kangaroo in Australia. <laughs> And, and thank you for, for, for saying that, why don't they listen to it? Because you are making a natural assumption like I do, that it's already there, that it's speaking to you, it's whispering to you, it's screaming at you, but you're choosing to ignore it because you want to be distracted in other areas. To me, on a very simple level, um, uh, is, is, is often our thoughts are, you know, our mind's voice, our feelings, are our soul trying to speak to us in the world. And I, I, I see this in terms of even communication. I have so many people saying, hey, I want to learn how to communicate with my wife or my husband, or my business partner, and I work a lot with business partners who, you know, sometimes are struggling a little bit in terms of, you know, connection. And when you can get somebody just to explain, not even explain, but just share how they feel about something, and I mean fundamentally feel about something, um, it, it, it disarms all the bullshit, it disarms all the arguments. So a lot of people are, aren't, aren't listening to that intuition because let, let's just for a moment think about your question and think about this. And let's just for a second assume that um, that intuition is, is that internal guidance system. It's your soul whispering or pointing in the direction that it feels you need to go. And you're choosing not to listen to it. Okay. And the, my, my perspective on that is very, very simple is that, is that why would you, why would you trust the innermost, uh, voices of, of you when you don't trust yourself to begin with? And what I mean by that is, when was the last time you or I'm not, I'm not speaking about you personally, but your listeners asked themselves this very, very simple but profound question, do I trust myself? Because we think about trust as external. Trust is this, is this thing that we talk about as it relates to the bank manager. Trust is the babysitter. Trust is something else. But how many of us have actually ever asked the question, do I actually trust myself? And then they'll say things like, well, at home I do in a business or vice versa or whatever. No, no, no. Trust is just trust. It's not separated into certain categories. And if you don't trust yourself, why would you listen? 
why would you listen to your to your internal guidance system? The woman who came to me and had this amazingly scripted, extraordinary story of the of the day her husband ripped her heart apart by cheating on her. And by the time we sat down at this workshop, God, I don't know how she did it. She got around to every single person at the workshop and explained this story. And no one has ever challenged the story. And I said, did you see it coming? And she says, oh, no, no, no. And, and by the way, nor did anyone else. Her, his mother, his friends, his family, no one saw it coming. And I looked at her and I says, I don't believe you for one minute. And I'll tell you why I don't believe you, because you come across to me as far too smart and you come across to me, more importantly, as far too intuitive. And she got so angry at me. And this was in Canada. She got so mad. And I said, yeah, let's just name the anger that's there. And of course, she denied the anger, which, which obviously makes it worse. And I said, let's just go beyond the anger and just tell me what emotion are you feeling behind the judgment you have for me right now? And as she lifted her face with the mascara pouring down her face because of her tears, she looked at me. She says, I knew it the day I met him. And I knew it the day we walked down the aisle. Oh, Jesus. And we all can relate to this at some level. We've made a business decision. We've, we've got into partnerships. We, we signed a, a sales contract. We've done something. And intuitively, our inner guidance was saying off. And the spreadsheet said, do it because it makes sense. The accountant said, do it. I'm not trying to blame the poor accountants in the world, but et cetera, et cetera. And it just didn't work out. And it was never destined to work out. And there's this idea of just creating a space where our brain is important. But to me, it's nothing more than a laptop and shouldn't be treated any, any differently than a laptop. But just to create the space and the things that get in, in the way of intuition are things like anger, which most people have, but they don't recognize it. And they go, oh, no, no, I'm not angry. When, when was the last time we got ang angry? Oh, well, I remember somebody cutting me off at the bridge in uh, Vancouver and I wanted to rip their head off. So where do you think that anger came from? Your, your ass or your pocket? It came out of you. You're all, everyone's angry, the Dalai Lama himself, but we don't honor it in society. We don't, we don't process it. The other thing is we haven't healed. We have traumas that we haven't healed. Um, you know, we, we live in our heads because we're consuming way too much information. So we're, we're reading uh, multiple books and multiple consuming multiple uh, mediums of, of, of information at the speed of light. And what we're doing is pouring all this information on top of this incredible wisdom that we have. And the wisdom doesn't get a chance to breathe and to come out into the world. So I ask people to slow down, not to give up podcasts or books or anything, but just to slow down with their consumption of it. And it's not driven by this need for and desire for education. Most consumptions of information is delivered, are, are driven by this insecurity. What if I miss out on the latest, greatest book? What if I miss out? I asked a group of leaders recently, the Outdoor Association um, brought me in, you know, the Patagonias, the North Faces and all these different people. And there was about 40 leaders in this room. And I said, what, what did you love doing that you've given up or stopped doing? Because it wasn't productive or it didn't make money. And I had 40 guilty looking kids that had just looked like they'd skipped out of school in the last month and they were about to admit it. And every one of them had given up something. Ironically, over the last five years, like something like piano, uh, playing music, ironically, one of the guys who actually works with one of the biggest outdoor uh, um, organizations said he'd given up mountain climbing and he just loves it. And I said to them, by the way, do you remember how grumpy you are when you do these things you loved? And they go, no, 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 Philip. I was great. I, I mean, I loved it. Do you remember how, how, much, how much of your creativity was sucked away by having the distraction of mountain climbing and photography and piano. And they go, no, 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 Philip, no, no. Actually, now that I think about it, that was, I was at my best in my creativity. My imagination was firing because I would take that space. It was like meditative and I'd come back and I'd see the world in a way I didn't see before. And then of course I turned it all back on them. I said, how dare you deprive the world of that?
how dare you come home to your kids a grumpy, you know, grumpy ass because you're not giving yourself permission to take the time to nurture yourself. How dare you do that to yourself? Don't deprive the world of that. Isn't it ironic that it's taken a global pandemic to give people the permission they thought they needed in order to work on or nurture these creative aspects of their lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think there's a lot of people saying it's never, it's never going to go back. I think we'll go straight back. Oh, maybe it'll look different and maybe there'll be less airlines in the sky and maybe there'll be whatever. I'm not saying it's going to go back to exactly the same, but we have, we have short memories. And, you know, and I say this and I, please don't take this as, as some sort of sexist comment, but I'm actually being serious. I, it's beyond my, my, my comprehension that my wife forgot about the pain of having a baby when I sat in the labor room with her and watched her go through it. I'm still scarred by the pain, never mind her, but she has this incredible ability, and many women do, of not focusing on the pain and, and just looking at the beauty. Um, and I feel that a lot of us are going to go back, and busyness is, is not an antidote to anxiety. Busyness is not an antidote to, to, to anxiety. But what happens is we get busier and busier and busier because we're actually not addressing some unsettledness in our soul. People who tell you, this is my experience, people who tell you they believe in God every single minute of the day are insecure about their beliefs. People who are trying to get you to, to do X are insecure about the thing they want you to do. People are constantly telling you that they love what they do. Have you heard me once say in this interview, I love what I do? But I don't go around telling the world how lucky I am and how I love my work. Yeah. I definitely will love my work, but the people who constantly try to tell you, it's like people who say, you know, my number one value is family. I go, yeah, great. I don't care what your number one value is. I don't want you to tell me what your number one value is. I want you to show me your number one value. Look, let me see your calendar. Let me look at your life. Let me come and live with you. And I will tell you what you value. I will show you what you value. Have you ever had a client ask you to do that? Uh, I've had literally, I've, I remember one time. That would be an incredible coaching experience, by the way. Well, I've been very fortunate, uh, and, I, and I don't take this for granted, uh, to, to be brought into some of the most sacred environments, which I rarely ever actually never talk about, actually. But obviously, I will never mention names. We've been brought into families, uh, been brought into uh, relationships where I work with one person and I end up talking to himself and his wife or, or, or uh, her and her husband. Um, I've also literally two days ago, I had a, had a young man in my ho in my home who's, um, 17 years old and, uh, and is struggling a little bit with his whole identity and, and, and where he shows up in the world. So I've, I've actually probably got into more intimate locations with people. I also have had families bring me in to work with them privately and it's not something I advertise or talk about. So I've been very privileged to really get in behind the scenes in people's lives. And I would say I haven't necessarily lived and put a camper bed or a blow up bed next to their bed in their bedroom, which would definitely be taking it too far, I'm sure. But um, I've been very privileged to get in behind the scenes with a lot of people. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm very lucky for that. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this last question because I promised uh, a friend of mine, a close friend of mine that I would. Do you use a coach yourself? And God, no, I'm perfect. <laughs> sorry, sorry, keep going because there was an arm there. I cut it. Sorry. Uh, it was going to be why or why not? Yeah, on occasion, um, every six months, um, I what I find is I find myself getting pretty full, and then I go and get therapy, uh, traditional talk, talk therapy. Um, I've experimented with different forms of therapy that just intuitively don't necessarily land for me. Um, every year I would find somebody to go on a retreat with, um, and, uh, but I haven't found a formal coach, um, and any of the coaches that I've, that I've talked to historically in the past, um, I, it, I just don't necessarily align to them. A lot of coaching in the world today is about building and scaling. 
um, and, and growing your business and growing it for the sake of growing it. And that's just not something I align with, but I don't have an official coach, but I do work on myself, um, every six months at least. And every year I take a week out to go on some type of retreat where I retreat back from the world and ask myself some really good questions. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been amazing. Um, good luck with everything as you navigate this whole pandemic. PhilipMcKernan.com. Is there anywhere else that you would like them to connect with you? Are you on social? Uh, yeah, Facebook, uh, pretty active, but it's not just business stuff. I'm just, there's just one Facebook, uh, you know, or one social kind of perspective. It's my family, it's me, it's learnings, it's writings, it's whatever. So Facebook and Instagram and uh, Medium, I write, uh, write stories in there probably once a week at the moment. Okay, Philip, thanks for taking the time and good luck on your two-month retreat. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Electric acid. Electric acid.